You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. It is the church's job to keep the gospel intact, whether by the proclamation from our pulpit or the demonstration of our lives, it is the church's job to keep the gospel intact. If we get everything else right, but we get that wrong, we've lost it. I think you probably believe that. I'm not the first one to say it, but I believe it down to my shoes. This is the high calling of the church, this imperfect, made perfect, busted up but beautiful bride of Christ. How can the completely lost be found? How can hopelessness be converted to hopefulness? How can emptiness be filled and vanity be satisfied? It is our task in a world of seemingly endless static and noise, to ever, only, always provide one answer, Christ and Christ alone. I think you probably believe the same thing. At least I hope you do. So this is the second to last week in this teaching series, just called What Jesus Said. We're nearing the home stretch, kind of closing it out next week. Um, In preparation for this series, I did a a lot of reading about why Jesus is so compelling to so many. And I came across a quote by John Stott, who's one of my favorite writers, and I'd like to offer it to you because I think he hits the nail on the head as far as why there is no one else like our Jesus and why so many of us can't stop thinking about him. Here's what John Stott says. There's no question that Jesus was conservative, in his attitude towards scripture. He said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And again, not one iota or dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Sounds conservative. But Jesus was also a radical, Stott says. He was a keen critic of the Jewish establishment. He insisted on caring for those whom society despised. He spoke to women in public, which was not done. He invited children to come to him when his own disciples assumed he didn't want to be bothered. He allowed prostitutes to touch him where the Pharisees would shrink back. And he himself actually touched an untouchable leper where Pharisees threw stones to make them keep their distance. Thus, Jesus is this unique combination of the conservative and the radical. Conservative towards scripture and radical in his biblical scrutiny of everything else. And I just go, yes! Like, I love that about Jesus. In this world of deepening polarization, this side versus this side, these guys versus these guys, heroes and villains, Jesus stands boldly in the meaningful but messy middle. And this morning, we're going to see a text that shows this tension in stunning clarity. This morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. And so you can turn there, scroll there, flip there, or follow along on the screens. We're basically going to go through the entire chapter. So 
here we go. This morning, Jesus is going to call down seven woes. Seven woes, these expressions of holy grief on his critics. And he invites anybody who's with him to stand with him. He's going to ask and answer a question that is just as relevant then as it is today. By what right can you have peace with God? How does that happen? And there's this incredibly raw tension in this text, almost this like old Western movie style thing, like who's going to shoot first? Who's going to wink first? Who's going to break the silence? So before we get to it, though, three pieces of context that I want you to kind of watch out for that's going to help make sense of Matthew 23. Three things I want you to see. First thing I want you to watch out for is the audience in Matthew 23, the audience. The entire chapter, Matthew 23, takes place in the temple courts in Jerusalem. It's this football field-sized open space with the temple at one end. And Jesus is teaching inside the temple courts. It's almost this entire chapter. So his disciples are there, and there's a crowd that's gathering, and, like usual, right on the fringes of the crowd, with one ear perked to what he's saying, there's the religious elite with one eyebrow raised. All throughout this chapter, Jesus targets two groups of people. He calls them the scribes and the Pharisees, and so with his disciples and a crowd, and these guys kind of on the fringes. So who were these scribes and Pharisees, and why is Jesus so eager to lock horns with them? Scribes. The scribes were professional, perpetual students of the law. The old Mosaic law, we call it the Old Testament. A lot of it's found in Leviticus and Numbers, and these guys were excellent in trying to figure out exactly what Moses meant when he said what he said. They were the pros. They love policy and procedure. They cite chapter and verse. They study the law, interpret the law, and watch for violations of the law. Think over-educated spiritual bureaucrats with religious red tape. That's the scribes. None of the Pharisees, they kind of hang out together. The Pharisees, this is a group that Jesus squares off with the most in the Gospels. If the scribes are the policy lovers, then the Pharisees are the policy enforcers. They love being right, can't imagine being wrong. And they hate anybody who questions them, and they're ready to make life very difficult for you. And that's problematic because Jesus is about to make things very problematic for them. So I want you to watch out for that as we get into this text. Watch out for the audience. Second piece of context you need to see is the language in Matthew 23. Jesus is never more biting anywhere in the Gospels as he is in Matthew 23. He will never use stronger language than he does in this chapter. And so if you like soft and cuddly Jesus, this is going to mess with you a little bit, okay? If you got a picture of like Jesus, the gentle shepherd, like stroking you know, cuddly little fluffy sheep, that's not Matthew 23. This is much different. This is like rough carpenter's hands, Jesus, ready to do his father's will and submitted to his glory. And Jesus is going to aim these seven woes at these guys, these expressions of holy grief. He calls these guys hypocrites, blind guides, sons of hell, vipers and serpents, the religious leaders of his day. 
The language of Matthew 23 is way past face palm, like way more than frustration. This isn't the language of minor annoyance or a slap on the wrist or a shot across the bow. This is Jesus, God incarnate, God in the flesh, issuing a divine warning. This is God himself speaking against the way things are in first century Israel and the ones who made it that way. So that's the second thing I want you to watch for, the audience, the language, and then the third piece of context, really what's happening around this story, around this little scene. So here's what's led to this showdown in the square. Chapter 21, a couple days earlier, Jesus enters the temple, and as he walks into the temple, he sees these tables set up where people can buy pigeons for sale. Now that's an odd thing for us, you wouldn't expect to come to church and see that in the lobby. Here's what that is. When you would come to worship God, you'd bring a spotless lamb. But in the Old Testament, God made a provision for people who could not afford a spotless lamb, and they could buy a pigeon. And this was God's provision for those who were of lower economic status to still come and worship him. Mary and Joseph brought pigeons when they came. Interesting little insight there. But... What Jesus gets mad about is he sees these people who have set up their booths in front of worship of Almighty God to oppress those who could not afford. And so instead of making a way, they're upcharging people for these pigeons. And this does not sit well with Jesus. And so Jesus comes into the temple, flips over the tables, drives them out, and then, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, listen, my house is going to be called a house of prayer. Like, oh, come on, Jesus, just like a little side hustle here. It's not that bad. Really, Jesus? And my house should be called a house of prayer? Jesus, don't you mean God's house? My house, that's a little, hmm. A couple days go by, and then the religious leaders come back to Jesus, and they ask him quite directly. They say, by whose authority are you doing these things, Jesus? Jesus' response is, how about I ask you guys the questions? But you know what? You're not really interested in hearing from me, so I'm not going to bother to tell you. Nobody treats these guys like that. Then they try to trip them up with some verbal gymnastics, and they say, well, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's a little bit of a catch-22, because if he says no, then he's a political revolutionary, and if he says yes, then he's a cultural capitulator. I'm like, ah, we'll see what he says. He goes, guys... Stop it. Why don't you just give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's? Great answer. Then they ask him another question. They say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? It's like, oh, man, he's a sucker if he only picks one because we got like 600 of them. Ha ha. And he says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And you didn't ask this, but the second one is just like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Speaking of which, on this love thing, guys, how are you doing with that? You don't want to talk about that? Oh, okay. Let's just turn the heat down a little bit. So, once again, there's this mounting pressure surrounding Jesus. Every one of these scenes ends with more tension than it started with. Something has to happen. The dam is about to break. Something's going to give. And chapter 23, in the temple courts, a growing crowd standing by, Jesus just says, look, everybody, you really want to understand my beef with these guys? Here it is. And then he unloads a seven-point sermon. (laughs) But before he gets specific, Jesus lays out some very important and very scalding groundwork. Here it is, Matthew 23. Take a look in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So this is Jesus' idea of a nice warm intro for his sermon. Let's remember, this is happening in the temple courts. This is their turf. So after blasting what they do, now Jesus takes aim at why they do it. Take a look in verse 5. He says, those guys, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad, we'll get to what those are, and their fringes long, we'll get to that, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. So what are broad phylacteries and long fringes? This is important. Phylacteries are these little leather boxes, about that big. They have a little door on them, and you could roll up your favorite scripture verse and put it inside. Okay, and this is based right out of Deuteronomy 6, which says that you should bind the word of the Lord on the frontlets of your eyes. And so these guys are like, oh, all right, we're going to do that. And so what happened was, in Jesus' day, these little phylacteries became a sign of spiritual ostentation, right? And so, man, the bigger the phylactery, the broader the box, the holier the man. Hmm. What about fringes? It's the same thing. Jewish men then, like today, wear prayer shawls. You can, it's written, read about it in Numbers 15, I think is where it is. And the prayer shawl has these little strands on it called fringes. And God said, this is supposed to be a prayer prompt. When you touch this thing, you're supposed to remember how I've rescued you. And what happened was, in Jesus' day, these things got longer and longer and longer until the same thing, the longer the fringe, the greater the devotion. And so these guys are just love showing off. The only way to contextualize that for us today is like, maybe you've been in a Bible study or you're in church this morning, like sitting next to somebody and you like look at their Bible and like their Bible's like all highlighted, you know, it's like all marked up and like pen stuff and you're like, oh, they're so holy, Right? Maybe, maybe not. Don't look at the wrong metric here. Well, then he takes three jabs at titles that these guys love to hold on to. Take a look in verse 10. He says, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither shall you be called instructors, for you have one instructor who's the Christ. Like, whoa. So just like tearing down establishment. As long as we're talking about leadership, authority, and influence, verse 11, he says, the greatest among you should be your servant. As if to say, you want real greatness? Grab a towel and start washing feet. Why is that so important? Verse 12, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever humbles himself, or whoever, sorry, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is Jesus saying, look, everything you've seen from these guys, dead wrong. You've got nothing but bad examples. My job is completely different. This is Jesus. Those guys look good, but they're missing the point. They're outwardly obedient, inwardly hollow, initially very impressive, but ultimately very disconnected. Their holy-looking lives don't match their wicked, selfish, power-hungry hearts. They're phonies, they're fakes, and they're sellouts. That's the introduction 
So if you're in the crowd that day, at this point, you're like looking for the rocks to start flying at Jesus. Because rabbis aren't supposed to do this kind of thing, are they? Not supposed to teach this way. But we're at this point where Jesus inevitably, invariably seems to go. He's like, look, either I'm right or I'm wrong. Either I'm 100% right or I'm 100% crazy. You can't have no opinion on what I'm saying. And now that I have your attention, he says, let's get specific. And so what follows are seven woes, seven pronouncements, seven judgments, and they all follow the same formula. First, Jesus will say, woe, he'll pronounce it, and then he'll say, why? And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at every one of them, and then we're going to talk about what all of this means as far as how you could enjoy peace with God. Woe number one. It's in verse 13. Here's what it says. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Exclamation points. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So Jesus starts this charming monologue by calling them all hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is, right? This is somebody who says one thing and does another. The word comes from the secular Greek theater culture where someone would wear a mask during a play. And literally, the word hypocrite means someone who speaks from underneath. So there's the you out here. Everybody sees. But then there's the you underneath. And Jesus says, come on. You guys... You say you love pointing people to God, but what you really love is the power you get when you slam the door in their faces. You are so far from the heart of God, it's like you're wearing a mask. That's woe number one. Woe number two, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's somebody who converts to their way of thinking. You cross sea and land to get one. Wow. But when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Holy smokes. That word child of hell, literally it means a son of Gehenna. This is real place, the south side of Jerusalem. It was this trash heap where you would take your refuse to be burned. And so this is Jesus saying, look, I'm, I'm not against your effort. You guys cross land and sea. Way to go. That's really impressive. What I am criticizing is your motivation. Because you're actually not working for God. You're just kind of stroking your own ego a little bit, aren't you? Here's his point. Are you making lovers of God or lovers of yourself? Are you raising worshipers for God's glory or are you recruiting fans for your own ego. People are not notches on your spiritual bedpost. People are image bearers made by God, and God loves them. Quick little aside, not the point of this thing, but you can learn an awful lot about a leader by what they do with influence, can't you? That's woe number two. Woe number three, this one's a bit longer. Woe to you, blind guides. What a great metaphor that is. Blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by an oath. We'll talk about that in a minute. You blind fools, for what is greater, the gold or the 
temple that has made the gold sacred. Now, here's what this is about. This one's a little bit kind of erudite, so let's bring it in. This is the, the Pharisees really liked to coach people on how to promise something and not really mean it, right? And so the Pharisees would teach this. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, just swear by the temple. So, like, I'm going to go do this thing for you. I'll come over and help you, or I'll bail you out. I swear by the temple, which is kind of like crossing your fingers just behind your back like that. They're going to think you're serious, but nah, you're off the hook. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, oh. <sighs> and Jesus' point here is he's like, why are you bothering to waste your breath on this? Here's a novel idea. Tell the truth. Say what you mean, mean what you say, because if you live truthful lives, you don't have to spend all that energy developing a poker face, learning how to lie. Here's the problem with you guys, he says. The truth isn't in you, and so you can't tell the truth. You're so busy acting right that you've forgotten that you need to be made right. Woe number four, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you tithe, mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Gosh, there's like so much good stuff in there. So what's with this like dill, mint, and cumin? So in Jesus' day, people were required to give back 10% of whatever they had back to God. This was called a tithe. It was instituted in the Old Testament. Interestingly, the New Testament just tells you to be generous, as if that's like the bottom standard. And so that 10%, though, included your crops, what you had, whatever you made. Mint, dill, and cumin are the smallest crops in Jesus' day. And so what Jesus is saying is, gosh, these guys... You are so spiritually scrupulous, you give 10% of the things that nobody else notices. A little bit of mint. It's like a tiny little mint leaf. Anybody ever held up a mint leaf? It's like the size of your fingernail. It's tiny. And, and Jesus is going, gosh, these guys, man, they look so good. They've got all the details down. If we had to contextualize this today, it'd be like saying, you know what? Man, I went to church three out of the last four Sundays. I even put a check in the little offering box in the back. I folded it up so nobody would see it. Nobody knew what the number was, but I know. Right? I even read my Bible this week. Well, I mean, I saw a Bible verse on somebody's bumper sticker when I was at the light, so like I read that, so that feels good. And so Jesus is like, wow, what marvelous generosity. <laughs> you guys are so good. I gave some mint, but I told that half-truth to my wife. I guess I'm not very just, am I? Gave some dill, but man, I love to hold that grudge. I guess I'm not very merciful, am I? Gave some cumin, but what about that like quick, harmless, little whisper gossip? I guess I'm not that faithful, am I? Hmm. Unbalanced religiosity. And you know what he's talking about here, because sometimes that's us. Isn't it? You know what this looks like. He says, it's like straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. So he says, if you're trying to make that wine that the Pharisees would make, you strain it so it's super fine, and you get rid of everything down to a gnat. 
But the problem is, is you're swallowing a camel. What a wonderful hyperbole, this wonderful exaggeration. So good at the details, missing the point. What's his point? God doesn't need your garden herbs. God needs your heart. That's what he wants. Speaking of my heart, woe number five, verse 25. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside will also be made clean. Now, Jesus is talking about ceremonial cleanliness here. Remember, these guys are the pros at that stuff. 500 different ways to wash your hands. These guys had They're ready to roll. And Jesus says, gosh, you guys look so good. Mm. But you know what learning from you is like? It's like brewing coffee and then emptying the sink strainer in that mug. Sucking that back. Mmm, all those little floaters in there. It's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? When you pour out your life, what are you pouring out? Prideful words come from a prideful heart. Judgmental words come from a judgmental heart. Hateful words come from a hateful heart. The problem isn't out here. It's really here. It just shows itself out here. Hmm. So you can say you're with God all you want, but until this lines up with this, you're not fooling anybody. And maybe you caught this, but did you see how Jesus actually gives his subtle instruction here in verse 26? He says, first, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be made clean. Well, how are we supposed to do that, Jesus? We're a bunch of messes. (laughs) It's dark in there. Oh, there's stuff in there that I've been scraping off for years, and I just can't get it. And these Pharisees going, gosh, if we're not clean, how's anybody else going to be clean, Jesus? How is that even possible to have a clean heart? Hmm. Hang on, he'll get there. Woe number six, two more. Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, outwardly appear beautiful, inside full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Same idea as the cup and the plate, just a more intense metaphor. According to the Levitical law, Old Testament, the tomb of someone who had recently died was unclean for seven days, and so you couldn't go near it. And so what these Pharisees and scribes did is they took lime and plaster, and they'd whitewash the tombs to make sure people didn't go anywhere near it. And this was like a virtuous marker. And Jesus says... Ironically, in this like master stroke of teaching, he says, you know those tombs that you guys are always washing? That's you. You think you're this virtuous marker. But the problem is inside, you're full of death and decay and rot, and the further people stay away from you, the better. Ouch. Last one. Verse 29, woe number seven. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. This is them saying, like, look, if we would have lived back then, we would have never killed Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. We would have listened to those guys. Those guys, our fathers, may have been wrong. We're right Verse 31, Jesus says, Well, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then he says this, 
fill up then the measure of your fathers. As if to say, like, come at me, bro, I'm right here. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is Jesus asking them, you think you would have acted differently to my prophets? You're doing the same thing to me right now. In a couple of days, I'm going to be dead, and you guys are the ones who put me there. So this is his sermon to the religious leaders in his day. This is how Jesus is going to win friends and influence people. Okay? This is Jesus like, tell them what you tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told This is Jesus trying to figure this whole thing out with this crowd and saying, look, how do you get peace with God? Try and do this with these guys. Hmm. So what should we take from this? Is this just a commentary on the first century Jewish religious elite? Here's the point. If the church's job is to keep the gospel intact, here's what you need to know based on this text. There are two ways that you could have peace with God. At least if Jesus is to be believed. First way, and it's the way most people try, the really religious ones, you can try and get right with God from the outside in. Sounds like this. Behave. Do better. Try harder. Work at it. Go to church. Give your money away. Do all the right things. Clean the outside of the cup. Whitewash the tomb. Tithe the mint. Here's the problem, though. If your version of Christianity starts with, gets its strength from, or finds its power in what you do for God, you have missed the gospel entirely. That is modern-day Phariseeism. And there's a little bit of Pharisee in every one of us. Because we really like to look at our own performance and convince ourselves that we're doing okay. It's easier to fix your performance, isn't it? Anytime you tie God's love for you to your performance for him, you are slipping into Phariseeism. Anytime you obsess over the outside and neglect the inside, you're slipping into Phariseeism. Anytime you try to work your way to God instead of accepting something from God, you are slipping into Phariseeism. So that's the first way to try to get peace with God from the outside in. Modify your behavior, and then God will love you. Thankfully, mercifully, there's a second way. And incidentally, it's the only way that works. And you're smart because you know what I'm about to say. It's from the inside out. When you let Jesus change your life from the inside out, life shifts from being this oppressive system of like hoops and rituals that I have to jump to into this freedom-filled, love-fueled relationship with Jesus of Nazareth. And then the purpose of my life leaps from trying to impress him with my perfect performance and becomes all about enjoying him in relationship. If your God only loves you when you do the right stuff, your God is too small. If your God only loves you when you perform well, your God is too small. If your God only loves you when you're happy with yourself, your God is too small. And here's the good news of the gospel. God's love for you is never tied to your performance for him. Ever. And you know how I know that? 
because of exactly where Jesus goes next. Back to the text. Verse 37. With attention hanging in the air and like all their mouths probably still hanging open, harsh words said and hard hearts exposed, scalding indictments and mic drop moments, Jesus drastically changes tactics. And you can almost imagine like his face falling, his voice lowering. And those like fiery eyes, cool. These lament-filled, heart-heard, heart-heavy words of ache come. He says this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you, you are not willing. What do you hear under there? What is that? What's driving Jesus' tone there? What does it mean that in Matthew 23, the most scalding, like heavy, spicy language Jesus words in all the Gospels, that this whole scene concludes with this incredibly intimate, tender, loving image of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings? What does that mean? Here's what that means. The one question that Jesus is asking when you take on the whole of Matthew 23, by what right can you have peace with God? He says, you're going to continue and be like the Pharisee? Keep trying? How long are you going to be down that path until you give up? Or are you willing to dare to believe the unbelievable truth of grace and let God love you? Where shame wants me to see my unworthiness, which is great, and stop there. Jesus sees my unworthiness, which is great, names my unworthiness in great detail, and then unbelievably wants to give me his worthiness. That's grace. We don't deserve it, but in Christ you can have it. This is Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we, in him, that we might become the righteousness of God. This is Peter. When Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, 1 Peter 2.10. This is John when he says, see what marvelous love the Father has lavished upon us, that we might be called children of God, 1 John 3.1. Who loves like that? What even is that? Why does that even happen? How is that possible, right? Your soul, when you really latch onto it, it just kind of explodes like that wonderful hymn, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Does your heart resonate with that? Do you believe that? That the good news of the gospel is you are way more unworthy than you would ever care to admit, and you are way more loved than you could ever possibly imagine. The only people who marvel at Jesus' love are those who think they don't deserve it. Are you willing to believe that? Now, that's you personally, okay? That's just you and Jesus. 
That's like a few hundred people individually and Jesus. But there's this communal element to this thing, and here's what I mean. Church, right? Church should never be reduced to a spirituality contest where I pit my holiness against your holiness. We don't want to do that, just like a clean cup contest, because if that's what church becomes, you might as well kick Jesus out. Because Jesus isn't interested in people who think they're already righteous. He's interested in unrighteous people who are desperate to be made righteous. We have the gift of the church to see that the unrighteous can be made righteous in Christ. And so the church ought to be this one place on planet Earth where it's okay to be in process as long as you are honest. Honest about the pain and penalty of your sin and honestly thankful for the one who can relieve you from it. The church is this one place where we are merciful by reflex and gracious by impulse, where we remind each other that whatever shame says, Jesus says the exact opposite. Shame says, you're sinful, so you stay away. Jesus says, you're sinful, come closer. Shame says, run and hide. Jesus says, come and stay. Shame says, you won't belong until you change. And Jesus says, be mine and I will start changing you. Shame says, you're not worthy of protecting. Shame says, or Jesus says, I'm going to protect you with myself. So I'm going to read another scripture to us this morning and then we're going to celebrate communion. <laughs> this comes from Romans chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen to this because some of you don't know that you're loved by God as you are, not as you should be. And once you grab hold of that grace, that grace transforms you into somebody that you could never imagine who is free to rest in the grace that has been shown to you in the cross. Here's Romans 5. It starts in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, although for a good person he might dare to die. But God shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners. That phrase, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while... We were enemies. We were reconciled to God. What? While you were an enemy, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Oh, that's how. Much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What's he saying? While. That's the one word that differentiates gospel from falsehood. While you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy, while your life was still a mess, Jesus has come. While everything was still dark, while you were still lost, he sought you, he bought you to bring you home. This isn't clean yourself up first. This is stop trying to clean yourself up and let Jesus do it. So here's where we're going to go with communion here in a moment. The men are going to come and pass out the elements. I want you to hold on to those, um, and then I'll come up 
and we'll take them together. Quick word of instruction, man, as you come. This is for those who have professed faith in Jesus. And if that's not you, that's okay. Please don't take this yet. But maybe this could be the day where you do say, you know, Lord, I am yours. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I can't get the outside of this cup white enough and clean enough to change the inside. So, Lord, change me from the inside out today, Lord, please. I recognize that Christ is enough. And if you've prayed that prayer or something like it any time in your life, then this is for you. This is where we celebrate the Lord's death until he comes again one day. And so the way I like to think about this is this is just an appetizer. We do this now. We do this today. One day, Jesus will serve us communion himself at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this just ties us over. It's a memorial until we get there. And so as the men are passing these out, just take them and hold them. Reflect for a few moments in quiet. And then I'll come back up and we'll take together. Let's pray, can we? Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. While we didn't deserve it, you still saw us and you said, I want him back. And so, Lord, we thank you for this memorial meal, bread and juice that represents a broken body and shed blood for those who claim Christ. Father, we love you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.